Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with fellow man-child Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we cold call Dr. Roy Levy of Arizona State University and see if he can explain Bayes' theorem better than I did last week. This leads to a broader discussion spanning Bayesian thinking, methods, estimation, and inference. Along the way, we also mention Jedi mind tricks, birds and the bees, time zones, Virgos, the dark side, cowards, subjectivity, lecturing bus drivers, sideways fish, and statistical pop-up books. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. So I've been thinking the last couple of days, I want to check in with you about something. Mm -hmm. There was the whole gag with Christy taking over the piano music at the front end. Uh, Yeah. But I have been a little worried about Tate's reaction with his saxophone being replaced. So do you have an update on how Tate is handling the transition of music from season one to season two? Well, yeah. So thanks for asking. The honest truth is I have mostly avoided it and he doesn't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) So he started to bring up the issue a little bit and I expertly used my Jedi mind tricks to essentially, this is not the conversation you're looking for. Let me see your identification. You don't need to see his identification. We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. And he just went off to something else, like you with the laser pointer, and I managed to avoid it. But it was really, really close to coming up. But so far, I'm in the clear. All right. Because didn't he bring it up in offering to update the intro for season two? Because it's not just like, oh, are you still using that audio clip? He offered to do a new one. Yeah, and maybe a better one than my... Okay, what was the rule? (laughs) Yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, so I think he was evolving grand plans, which you pretty much took out from under him. The, The point is that I have managed to avoid the entire conversation, which is good. Yeah, I remember when Sydney, my daughter, was pretty young. We went to our favorite Japanese restaurant, Nichibaikai. It's in a strip mall. And just as we're getting out of the car, so imagine this this little daughter of mine. She goes, Dad, what's a virgin? And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, we're just going in to have Japanese food, and this just comes out of her. Everything is racing through my head like... I have to do this now? I mean, do I bring up the egg and sperm? Do I take a birds and bees approach? Do I emphasize the importance of abstinence? And I could not control the flood of thoughts and emotions that were happening to me as I'm standing outside a minivan just wanting to go in and eat some Japanese food. (laughs) And it must have been coming across my face because Sid's looking at me with the most quizzical look, like something was wrong with me, and she sort of tilts her head to the side and puts her hands on her hips, and she goes, Dad, what's a burgeon? That store says Burgeon's Kitchen Supply. And (laughs) it's like, oh, Thank you. I avoided it one more time. Um, And I didn't have to actually have the sex talk with her. Ultimately, I outsourced it to Goldie. And the problem was solved. I never had to have the sex talk with the kids. Goldie handled it.
I am shocked. I'm shocked <laughs> that you relied on avoidance and subterfuge, pretending that you have a mini stroke. <laughs> you and I have worked together for a lot of years, and you've used all of these uh -huh. on me. I'm editing the episode that has already dropped by the time this one is dropped, Pop Quiz. Mm. I literally last evening wrapped up editing your response to Bayes' theorem. <clears throat> Which, as you recall, was an aircraft cartwheeling <laughs> down the runway. Flight 209, now arriving, gate 8. Gate 9. Gate 10. This is not the conversation you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the conversation I'm looking there for. There we go. And you managed to move from conditional probability to pregnancy tests. We still weren't entirely clear how you became so obsessed with pregnancy tests and is probably something we should talk about. And then it transitioned into buying pregnancy tests in bulk that then transitioned to buying a casket. So I've repressed all of that. I have no recollection of, of any of that. <laughs> Which is odd because it happened like four okay. days ago. Yeah, I think I probably wish I could have had a lot of pop quiz back this time or at least outsourced it to Goldie or somebody who actually knew something more. We need a call a friend option because when it comes to the sex talk, you bail to Goldie. Yeah. When it comes to the Bayes theorem, you should have bailed to somebody there. That would have been perfectly acceptable. I would have accepted a designated hitter in that situation. Not in baseball. Okay. We've established <laughs> this. That it is a pox uh -huh. upon the sport. Uh -huh. But if it was between bulk caskets at Costco... <laughs> so do you actually have a friend you could have phoned for a base? All right, you're conflating two <laughs> things. Do I know someone who's an expert in bays, huh. and do I have a friend? Okay. And... <laughs> I'm seeing... <laughs> I guess they're not really conflated because it's no to both. You know what? As last night, I had my brass quintet. The second trumpet was Sean. Mm who came up in a couple of episodes last season, yeah. and I wore my Quantitude t-shirt mm -hmm. to the rehearsal, and he made a comment about it, and I, I told him, I said, you were actually <laughs> a topic of conversation in several episodes, and he wasn't quite what sure what to do with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I could call Sean, although he's not a Bayesian, he's an electrical engineer. And he still might do as well as I did. <laughs> exactly, well, he... He shops at Costco, uh -huh. so he can't do any worse. I do not have a phone-a-friend on Bayes. Yeah. Do you? Well, I do have a Bayesian friend. We could give him a call. I'm liking where this is going. <laughs> do you really, for real, do you have his, I, like, number? I mean, I, can we call him now? I, I have his number in my cell phone. I never watched, what was the show where you could, like, call somebody or ask the audience or something? Uh, who wants to be a millionaire? Is that where they let you call somebody? Phone a friend, yeah, was one of the options. You could friend. pull the audience or you could phone a friend. We're going to, in post-editing, put that in right here. I'm almost comfortable enough to guess, but I may have to use a lifeline here. All right. <laughs> Are you ready? All right. This was not the plan. This is not what we were even going to talk Dude, about today. This is the plan now. 
Wait, wait, wait. How do we record it? We're doing a Zoom now, but if you call him on your phone, how do we record it? Uh, because I want his real live... Well, well first, is he going to see your caller ID and not pick up? <laughs> because in like eight years, my brother has never answered a okay. call from me. So you think it would be more likely that he would pick it up if it were spam than if it was explicitly labeled as I didn't as say me. that, but now that it's out there... <laughs> okay. Can you just hold it up to the microphone yeah, I, or can um, you like record on your well, phone? Well, I have an audio capture this in the same way that I capture our calls because I might need them for legal purposes later. <laughs> I just got to chill. <laughs> Let's go ahead and do this. Should I prep this at all for anybody out there who I'm calling or should we just do this? Um, Just call. Okay, here we go. What are you going to do? Wait, wait, wait. What's the setup? Right. Are you going to do the pop quiz when he answers or she answers, I don't know. What do you want just to do? say Bayes' theorem, go? I don't know. I, I don't know. It's your stupid <laughs> idea. Okay. Yeah, that uh, we need some help with some Bayes stuff, and we need it now. And uh, so we're phoning a friend, and I expect that this person will, well, jump at the opportunity, right? Who wouldn't? Anyone who's <laughs> listening to this? Okay, how about this? How about this? How about yeah. this? So when he answers or she answers, yes, he. let's have him do the pop quiz. When he answers, just tell him, who you are and say Bayes' theorem 90 seconds go. <laughs> and let's see if he does a better job than you do. Okay. Alright, do it. Here we go. Hello? Roy. Uh I need you to do something for me. It's okay. Patrick, I didn't. It's fine. It's fine, honey. Pat, I'll, I'll handle. Patrick, it. I didn't factor the time. I never know because doesn't Arizona just <laughs> not do times? Yeah, we don't. Wait, he's in. Who am I talking to? So this is Roy Levy at Arizona State. You okay? I lived in Phoenix. It is three hours behind. It is 5.40 in the freaking morning, Hancock. All right, so here's the thing, Roy. All right, here's oh, the thing. God. We um We do this thing on Quantitude where we, uh, it's called Pop Quiz, where we each throw a topic at each other and we have 90 seconds to, to do it. And we need, apparently I did not do such a great job on Bayes' theorem. So we're going to give you 90 seconds to tell us about Bayes' theorem. All right, and Patrick, do you have the timer? Just a sec. I'm queuing the timer up. Oh, by the way, Roy, nice to meet you. Um, all right. Yeah. You have 90 seconds. Bayes' theorem, go! Uh, sure. Uh, Bayes' theorem is about combining two sources of information. One is what, what you thought about the situation uh, before you observe the data at hand. And then the other is what the data themselves have to say about the situation. Uh, uh, that first source is expressed via uh, a, a prior probability distribution. Prior meaning uh, what you think or what you understand before you observe the data. And then the second source, the information of the data, that, that's expressed through the likelihood. That's, uh, that's the same likelihood that you're used to in frequentist statistics. Bayes' theorem is just, just tells us how to combine them following the rules of probability so that so that um, when you get your answer, the, the posterior distribution, it really combines those two sources. And the, the mechanics of it is really just uh, multiplying those two sources. That's it.
That's it. You you got thirty seconds. Anything else you want to add, dude? It's five forty in the morning. <laughs> Just okay. Twenty. Okay. Give me uh, give me an example, so example that's not a pregnancy test and does not involve caskets, and I'll tell you what that means later. Before you called me at five forty in the morning, you had some <laughs> Just... prior beliefs about how irritated my wife and I might be to get a call. Now that you've observed some data, Bayes' theorem would tell you how to combine those to get to the right answer. How irritated do you think we are now? I'm sorry, time's up. We. <laughs> That is perfect. <laughs> okay, thanks, man. Um, I love that song. Now let's listen to it a little bit. <laughs> you, you used it to mock me. You should okay. not use it to mock our poor friend here. Okay, again, I can't do okay, it off. Okay, so uh, quick, quick. I I don't know how to turn it off. Okay, there we go. It All is right. possible that you mentioned some things in your response that I didn't have time to get to. So, Roy, while we have you, there might be some more things. That, should we just unpack this a little bit more with Roy? I would love to talk to you a bit more okay. about this. Sure. All right, sure. Um, Can we find a, a better time, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really function very early in the morning very well. Can we call back? Sure. What do you need? 20 minutes? Is that cool? 20, so 6 a.m. That's <laughs> sure. Sure, guys. Go, go, sure. Give him a minute. I don't know. Um, okay, so how about if we call you back in an hour or so? All right, one hour. Sure, 6.40 a.m. All right. All right. Uh, okay. Well, hey, look at it this way. You're up yeah, anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for, thanks All for right. that. All right. Well, go for a run. All right, You'll we'll feel talk to you better. Soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, welcome back, Roy. Now we're properly on Zoom. We've never met before, so it is nice to meet you. It is nice to meet you. You look refreshed and (laughs) showered and coffeed. I do apologize for not factoring in the time difference. That's something that maybe we could have given some thought to, but... Greg, why don't you introduce Roy to the rest of us? I would be delighted to do that. Our guest today is Dr. Roy Levy. He's a Virgo. He likes long walks on the beach, fruity drinks served in a pineapple, and sincerity. All right, that's all going to get edited out, so let me do the lead-in again. Okay. Uh, So, Greg, this is the first time I've met Roy. Uh, Why don't you introduce him to everybody else? Fine. This is Roy Levy. He's a professor of measurement and statistical analysis in the T. Denny Samford School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University. He is a co-author on the book Bayesian Psychometric Modeling, which is why we woke you up at what was, like, what was the time? 5.40 in the morning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Again, on behalf of Quantitude, I offer a formal apology for that. It turns out that Greg and I are not very good with numbers, so we, we apologize. Uh, just for a little more flavor text, uh, Roy has published in lots of different aspects of modeling and psychometrics with work appearing in all the usual wonderful places like structural equation modeling and psych methods and multivariate behavioral research and British Journal of Mathematical and Statistical Psychology and so forth. Um, He's also received awards from American Educational Research Association, National Council on Measurement and Education, and 
And from President Obama, uh, he got the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, the P case. So he's legit, is what I'm saying. I was going to say, that's insane. I did not know that, Roy. That is very cool. Nice to be on the show with you guys. Thanks for having me. I view this episode as Patrick making an extended mockery of me. So when I gave an answer on Pop Quiz, whether it was good or bad, he mocked me with the alarm tone that you got to hear. For me, this entire rest of the conversation is you basically waving that tone in my (laughs) face. So we're going to ask you some questions about Bayesian-related things, really for our edification and the edification of folks out there, just to help us to understand things a little bit more. Does that sound reasonable? That sounds great. And I got to say, in listening to all the episodes, there have definitely been some times where each of you have said very, very Bayesian things, even if you didn't intend it. What? So, yeah. I I was not aware. (laughs) Oh, yeah, like... uh, in the in ones on factor analysis, Greg, you said something about the theory is the prior, and you you update it with the data. I about fell over what? in my chair. I did. When yeah, you did. That's random. Patrick, um, in one of them, you said I think it was the Monte Carlo episode. You said, you know, trust your gut, trust your theory, and talked about examples of retracted studies. You know, trusting your gut is factoring in your prior information and not just relying on the data at hand, but what you thought beforehand, too. Like many, you you do Bayes thinking even without calling it that. Okay, so Patrick, what question would you like to lead off formally to our guest with? Why does being a frequentist make me a bad person? (laughs) I don't know if we have enough time for that. Um... (laughs) Well, no, the uh, it doesn't make you a, a bad person. It just means you could be a you could be a different person. You could be a, a whether or not it's better. Or I'm not. ready to vote. I call a vote okay. now. <laughs> Frequentist machinery does a lot of good work, and it serves um, a lot of good purposes. I just happen to think Bayesian approaches allow us to do that kind of work and much more, and so I find it very appealing. Talk a little bit about that. So my substantive interest has long been intergenerational transmission of parental behavior to children in risk. Parental alcoholism influencing child development that then in turn places them at higher risk for substance and drug use, things like that. Because it was what I was taught and how I was trained and a structural equation modeler, a multi-level modeler, I embrace, I really do embrace hypothesis testing and p-values, and I very much understand the limitations of that. But tell me, just at a 30,000-foot view, how does a Bayesian perspective help me in that endeavor in a way that maybe a frequentist approach has been holding me back? Um, Okay, a lot to unpack there. Let me try and tick Mm -hmm. off some of the things that I heard that I could... Uh, trade-off. So you started with the substantive aspect and said, I'm interested in uh, parental alcoholism, say, and then subsequent child development. And Patrick, before you go collect your next data set, think about two variables, say parent alcoholism and maybe child substance use. Do you think the two of those things are correlated? Yes. Do you have in mind a correlation that you would suspect would be a reasonable result or a reasonable story? Do you think a correlation of 0.4 0.4 is just as likely as 0.9. No. Do you think a 0.4 is just as likely as negative 0.4 or negative 0.9? 
as an editorial comment, I feel like I'm being led somewhere that I don't want to go. Come along, come over to the dark side. It's you. You'll get. You'll get to know the power of the of the dark side. You only knew the power of the dark side. So yeah, you you say no. You have you you have some ideas in mind about a correlation. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that I like to hook people in to Bayesian inference is to say, you have those things in mind. And we often consider those things informally. That's what shows up in the lit review section of our documentation. Mm. What Bayes is really doing is bringing that information or allowing you to bring that information informally and more explicitly into the analysis. So from a substantive perspective, I'd say you have substantive beliefs and you have some ideas based on past research. It's not some whimsical thing. It's, it's not completely arbitrary. It's something that you've spent time thinking about. So shouldn't we incorporate that understanding into our analysis? We already do so in certain ways. You said again, from an SEM tradition and, and so on, and, or a multi-level traditions using frequentist approaches, you have certain paths in your model, and you have certain paths not in your model. That's prior beliefs about what you're willing to entertain and what you're not willing to entertain about the situation. That's all along the road to formally expressing prior beliefs in terms of a probability model. So that's how I try to sell you on the substantive end. And you've got me there because I'm teaching SEM right now. Yesterday in lecture, I said singularly one of the most powerful aspects of SEM is it allows you to be courageous. Is a saturated model is cowardly because you're not imposing any restrictions on the parameter space and you're not subjecting your theory to any a priori test. So you've got me so far that I draw on theory to estimate certain direct effects, certain indirect effects, but more importantly, omit effects, and then play the SEM game of, am I still able to reproduce the characteristics of my sample data, even in the absence of those omitted effects? Can I call him a coward? Roy, would that be okay if I call him a coward? <laughs> That's fine with me. And and what Bayes is, is doing is letting you be as brave or as cowardly as you like. So typically, just to pick up on that uh, theme, if you, if you have the path in the model, you're saying, let me just estimate it from the data. Let it be whatever it is. And if you don't, you're saying, I know or I'm going to stipulate that that path is zero or it's not included in the model. Bayes allows for that as well as anywhere in between. That is, you can more finely calibrate just how willing you are to restrict things or not, um, mm-hmm. to kind of calibrate your cowardice, uh, if you will. So Patrick could say, I think this path is 0.4, or I think this path is somewhere between 0.2 and 0.6, rather than just saying, God help me to know what value is on this path, right? That's right. We're brave with zero, but we're not brave with other things, is what you're saying. Right. So if, if we want to adopt that theme, that making that constraint, fixing it to zero is a mark of bravery, Bayes allows you to do that. And it also allows you to do letting things be fairly unfettered. But it also allows you to say, well, I have sort of softer beliefs. I say the correlation is more likely to be between 0.2 and 0.6 than it is around negative 0.9. Another thing you said was that you're a, a multi-level person and an SEM mm-hmm. person and you have those traditions. If you're a multi-level person, I try to say, well, multi-level modeling is very much Bayesian. And one way to think about multi-level modeling is 
Uh, you write your level one model, so to speak, as you're used to doing. And then everything that shows up on the right-hand side of the equation, that then drops down a line and moves over to the left side of an equation. That's, that's one way to think about what goes on in multi-level modeling. Intercepts, slopes, and so on become on the left-hand side of a level two model. Well, then specifying models and probabilistic distributions for parameters on the right-hand side of a level one equation, that's, that's what Bayes does. So in, in a lot of ways, multi-level modeling is very natural from a Bayesian perspective. I don't know what parameters are. I specify a model for them. In multi-level modeling, we usually write a little equation, and then there's a level two error term there, but we can think about that as a prior distribution itself. So this is a good sell, I have to admit. In fact, it's such a good sell, you're making me think that why isn't this always the way that people approach things? Well, a little bit is history. Um, so Patrick sort of alluded to this is how he was trained, and this is he feels very comfortable with it, and there's a, a long lineage of we do what we were trained to do, and, and I'm no exception to that. Mm-hmm. But the last century has been dominated by what we've come to call frequentist statistics. Bayes' inference was fairly commonplace well before that, but it fell out of favor largely with the rise of Fisher and Naaman Pearson type approaches and sharp criticisms and debates about Bayes' inference. Importantly, there's, there's actually no debate about the theorem. It's just it's math from the rules of mm-hmm. probability. The controversy stemmed over whether or not it's applicable in different situations. Didn't Fisher actually think that it was based on some kind of error or there was a fundamental problem with it? Yeah. So he, early in his career, was fairly dismissive of it and said it should be wholly rejected. Mm -hmm. Uh, We should never do this. And then later in his career, there's some people who say, well, he's sort of kind of warmed up to it, but not really. And it's it's very fuzzy. But in terms of the influence on practice, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt that, that Fisher's and others, not just Fisher, but Fisher's strong position against what we would call now Bayesian inference, really set the tone and continues to dominate, say, quantitative methods training as most of us experience it. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, why, do, why don't we all do this? Is uh, It's not really been exposed to as many of us as the, the usual or what are now conventional methods. And that has influenced things like what people are used to. Uh, software development certainly been a big deal. Mm-hmm. For a long time, Bayes was thought of as, okay, even if we're willing to accept that idea, I can't actually execute it. Mm-hmm. And now, with modern computing and modern uh, estimation strategies, the situation is sort of reversed, where it's actually a lot easier to do very complicated things with Bayes uh, than it is to do frequentist things. I mean, it's easier, but is it easy? There's no, no, there's no doubt that there's, some, there's overhead to getting into the Bayes world, both in terms of conceptualization and running a software. It's not as smooth, it's not as easy, it's not as accessible, although there have been a lot of strides in the last few years to make it more accessible. But there's sort of like a pivot point where, and this happens all the time when I teach my courses in Bayes methods, somebody says, why on earth do I need this? I've been, I've been estimating a mean my whole statistical life. I, <laughs> I have never needed any of this Bayes overhead to do this, and, and I grant that. But it turns out when you want to go to more complicated things and really push the envelope, um, I see a lot of people turn to Bayes, not because they believe in any of the philosophy of it like I do, but just out of practical, like, all right, this can, this can do work for me. This can get the job done. Is it easy? No. It takes some ramping up. It takes some thinking in different ways, and it takes some amount of programming commitment. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, 
it, for a lot of things, it's it's more feasible to do it as a Bayesian than not. So if you look back over the last 20 or 30 years and you've seen accessibility change with regard to computational software, where is it going such that accessibility will be even greater? I think in a few different directions, some of which I like, some of which I'm a little more hesitant uh, about. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that is going that I I think is good is there's just more options out there. Um, There's more software packages uh, that are either dedicated to Bayes inference or incorporating Bayesian approaches into existing, say, frequentist packages. Um, so there's just going to be more of it out there. It's also going to be a little bit more reduced overhead for the user. Software automating more things or streamlining mm-hmm. uh, more things in ways that in the past was left to the user to really do. There's also a, a good bit of work that's often involved in digging into some of the results that software is, again, more streamlining for people. I think all that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's now more and more point-and-click interfaces uh, in software for folks who want that rather than coding in whatever statistical program or language that, that you might have had to in the past. So there's, there's a push towards that accessibility. Um, there's also push towards things I don't love as much, which are things like default specifications. I don't really love those in, in many instances, but that is certainly going to make things more appealing to a number of researchers if they can say, all right, I just run it with the defaults. What's your favorite code-it-yourself program, and what do you think is the best current point-and-click option? Um, well, I'm an R user. Um, mm-hmm. That's my statistical home base for things, so I operate a lot in R. And through R, there are various interfaces to dedicated Bayesian estimation. There's a whole slew of R packages just about Bayesian estimation. Like if you go on CRAN, mm-hmm. um, there's a whole task view just that just lists all the Bayesian packages. So... For someone familiar with R, there's a great menu of things to choose from there. For more general computing, like there's a bunch of software, Bayes software, that's really about, all right, we don't have a ton of things built in, but we have incredible flexibility. This comes from the lineage of the Bugs program Mm -hmm. dating from the late 1980s, early 1990s, to JAGS in the early 2000s, and more recently to things like uh, the Stan software. And I don't really ever work with those software packages directly anymore. I call them from R, my statistical home base. The nice thing about the kind of development I've seen over the last uh, 10 plus years is that if you're an R person, if you're a MATLAB person, if you're an Excel person, if you're any kind of, if you're a Stata person, if you're a SAS user, there's just now more and more options for doing things. Point and click is a little bit behind that. Things sort of started as coding and point and click options. I know, for example, SPSS Mm -hmm. has included Bayesian uh, estimation in its software more recent versions. The software package JASP is a kind of um, point and click interface for Bayesian and and frequentist statistics. Mm -hmm. So there, there are a few options out there for those who want that kind of interface as well. So let me ask you, I'm totally on board with your baiting of you already know something going in, do you have expectations, things like that, totally on board. But I still have a data file that I'm trying to fit some kind of longitudinal model to, to say, I'm just going to make up an example, but look at the reciprocal overtime relations between depression and substance use in adolescence and make some kind of inference about risk and protective factors for kids with and without an alcoholic parent. And I use old school SEM in the usual way with growth and all of that. 
how can a Bayesian statistical approach help me better understand my substantive research question? Well, I think a few different ways. Earlier, you kind of said, I'm, I'm used to things like um, hypothesis testing and the like, and, and how is Bayes going to be different than that? And there's a little history there, which is that a lot of frequentist machinery grew up with the hypothesis testing traditions, and Bayes was kind of different. It was more what I would call a more modeling orientation. So some people say things like, well, I don't want to use Bayes because I want to do hypothesis testing as if they're separate. But you can do the kinds of hypothesis tests that you want to do as from a Bayesian perspective. And in, in fact, people have argued that it's it's a superior way to do it with things like Bayes factors, which can map onto some of the things we're used to doing in conventional ways about comparing models or rejecting or not rejecting hypotheses. One of the nice things that that, that sort of thing offers is you can get evidence against a theory or against a model, like we're used to getting with frequentist approaches. But you can also characterize evidence in favor of a model or in favor of a theory. You know, we were always taught early on in statistics that failing to reject the null is not the same thing as proving or accepting mm -hmm. and so on, and we're very careful in our language. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we had some mechanism that said, well, what is the evidence in favor of the null? Mm -hmm. And Bayes factors is one tool to do that that the Bayesian approach uh, affords us. More generally, though, if you want to, again, shift away from hypothesis testing to other views like more modeling estimation frameworks, Bayesian approaches, even if we don't have prior information that we're, we're wrangling into the analysis, I'd argue that it's a more natural way to interpret results. So you've got the overhead of all the MCMC and sampling and stuff that you got to work through. But at the end of the day, you get answers that I think are a, a lot more interpretable. So um, if you're like me, you really struggled when you first learned how to interpret confidence intervals. And you said something like, okay, my first confidence interval, there's a 95% chance mu is between here and here. And your stats teacher said, no, no, <laughs> that's not right. Um, it's actually, and then there's this long definition that involves yeah. some, some hypothetical and, and it makes your head hurt. So from a Bayesian analysis, you run your fancy model, you want to get a an interval summary of the posterior as a credibility interval, and you can say things like, based on my model and the data at hand, I am 95% sure that the parameter is between here and here. It, it's how you've always wanted to talk about statistics, and but you're yeah. taught, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. Two things I hate teaching about. One is the confidence interval. But the other is what you were talking about with the hypothesis testing is all of us who have taught SEM, it's a maddening lecture where you have to say the null hypothesis in SEM is that your model is correct. And now you need to bring empirical data to bear to reject that it is correct and that the alternative hypothesis is that it is incorrect. It is the most back-asswards approach from a philosophical standpoint. So Bayesian offers you some language to talk in different terms? The way I'd frame what you're getting at is the way we're used to doing hypothesis testing is that there's, there's certain asymmetries. The null is something and you're, you're trying to reject it. And then you kind of flip the script and now the null is something that you secretly hope you don't reject and don't play the low sample size, low power game to do that. <laughs> it would be nice if we had a more symmetric situation, meaning that we mm. could talk about evidence in favor, evidence against. 
I, in my world or in my work, I don't do a ton of that hypothesis testing work from either a Bayesian or frequentist perspective because I don't believe my model is right. I think it's a sort of a, uh, an inert null hypothesis, usually the model being perfectly correctly specified. But for those who want to kind of go down that path, yeah, I think it gives you a better way to find, kind of frame and get rid of some of that sticking asymmetry in do we reject, do we fail to reject the null, which we now don't want to reject, whereas our whole statistical lives mm-hmm. we have been trying to reject. <laughs> All right. So I got a question. True confessions in your day-to-day life analytically, what do you just do from a frequentist perspective anyway? Or are you all the way down to at the grocery store? Are you all Bayesian all the time? There are times when um, I do frequentist analysis for a variety of reasons. One is, for whatever reason, I'm working with a project with colleagues and by practical constraints or some other need, that's how we want to see results. There are times when I say the overhead to doing some things as a Bayesian may not be worth my effort Mm -hmm. in the sense that I say like, yeah, I could program this model. But um, I don't really have very strong prior beliefs that I'd like to manage about the situation. And my time is finite. And Mm -hmm. I have a a more accessible way to do X, Y, and Z. So I might try that. And in fact, to try to save myself as a Bayesian, uh, what I'll just add is (laughs) that very often I see Bayesians kind of do frequentist analysis and say, you can think of this as an approximate Bayesian analysis. That is, it's kind of what a Bayesian analysis would tell you with maximally diffuse priors. So sometimes I see Bayesians sort of saying, well, let me run the frequentist analysis, but view it as an approximate Bayesian analysis and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I see frequentists who say, I really want to be a frequentist, but I can't actually run this model as a frequentist. Let me run it as a Bayesian and view that as an approximation to a frequentist analysis. So Mm -hmm. I'm, since I'm guilty of doing all things, Um, I'd like to allow room for people to kind of use what they see fit and also to conceive of it in in whatever way, as long as they're essentially being honest with themselves and with each other about what they're doing. So why the acrimony between the two camps when there are so many points of connection between the two? I think it's largely um, historical with very strong personalities on either side (laughs) uh, of the debate. But I think it boils down to something that that you touched on earlier, which is, all right, I think of that parameter as being fixed. It's out there, but it's fixed. It's unknown, but it's fixed. And the, the conventional frequentist approach would be to say, it's a fixed entity. I should not be describing it with a probability distribution. The probability concept is not amenable to this situation. That is, frequentist probability is, this is what we beat into our intro stat students, upon repeated sampling, what is going to happen? Well, upon repeated sampling, that population parameter doesn't change. It doesn't vary. It's not subject to variability or distributional specification. The Bayes approach says, treat everything as random. That is, everything gets a distribution. Unknowns are given distributions. Knowns like data are given distributions, which induce likelihood functions once you collect the data. So Bayes just says, treat everything as a random variable. How to square that philosophically and say, well, is it, is it really fixed or is it really random? The way I do that is my conception of probability is not really a upon repeated sampling conception of probability. It's more the subjective degree of belief view, which is that, yeah, that parameter might be fixed, but I don't know what it is. And the probability language that I use is an expression of my uncertainty. 
It's not an expression of what's going to happen upon repeated sampling over and over and over. It's an expression of my thinking of the situation. Things like repeated sampling of things, that's good grounding for how I might think. Like, all right, a sampling distribution is a really good way to form a belief if, if you can think in those terms. But we have plenty of beliefs about things for which there aren't sampling distributions. We don't want to think about them as upon repeated sampling. But I still want to express my uncertainty and probability is my language for that. What would you say is the harshest legit criticism of a Bayesian perspective or Bayesian methods in practice? Where someone would make a criticism and you go, yeah, okay, that's fair. Well, from a practical perspective, um, the hardest thing is it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. Like this is a lot of overhead. This is a lot of work for me. Given my current constraints and goals, I say fair enough. Mm -hmm. I can't argue with that. More conceptually, there are difficulties within Bayesian inference. And and actually, the within Bayes debates about the right way to go about doing things are now more, I think, heated than the between Bayes Mm -hmm. frequentist debates Mm -hmm. that have historically been more heated. So that within the Bayes community, there's more, should we be doing model comparisons and model selection at all? Or should we be doing model averaging or synthesis in certain ways? Or Mm -hmm. um, should we even be doing model checking, that is, like characterizing the misfit of our models and things like that. So there's heated debates. Mm -hmm. But it's not someone saying, well, because you can't resolve issues of complexity or parsimony, I'm not even going to engage in your silly little thing, right? That's just, that's more people saying... I drank three cups of Bayesian Kool-Aid and someone else <laughs> yeah. going, well, I drank four cups of Bayesian, right? They're, they're all sort of in the same neighborhood there. Yeah. yeah. The most forceful one, which I don't tend to yield much ground on, is the notion of subjectivity. All these things like priors are subjective and isn't science supposed to be objective? And I feel very squeamish about specifying things based on my subjective understanding of the situation. And I understand that. I understand that squeamishness if you're not sort of brought up to think about prior specifications, that it's it's daunting and therefore you say, wait, this puts me in an uncomfortable situation. But the notion that it's subjective, if we're going to toss out things in statistics that are subjective, um, we're not going to have much of a field left. So uh, if sure. the criticism is subjectivity undermines Bayes, we're going to sweep away a whole lot of other stuff too. So. I don't tend to find that very forceful as a criticism, but it is the one I hear the most. Mm -hmm. The one that sometimes worries me is a simulation study where they have a really complicated model and they demonstrate that under some condition, maybe small samples, that maximum likelihood frequentist fails, you can't do it. And then they propose a Bayesian approach that is somehow able to do it when maximum likelihood doesn't. Saves the day. (laughs) Except in my kind of naive reading of it is the reason it works so well for this crazy complicated model with 50 subjects is they have these extraordinarily informative priors that the parameters almost can't help but take any value than those. Is that a fair critique that sometimes these look better than they might because you're going in with this very strong prior information that in practice you might not have available to you? Yeah, so that that's a strong critique. Sometimes strong priors are good because they keep us from a wacky answers. In my world in, in item response theory research, 
in the late 70s and 80s, there was a lot of research on parameters, uh, certain parameters like slope type parameters in, in IRT, like factor loadings. I think the technical term was zooming off into outer space. <laughs> so you needed pretty strong priors to make sure that they didn't. So strong priors were viewed as a, a good thing there. The kind of situation you're describing is is a little bit of like sort of rigging the game. And you can always rig the game if you're willing to play it that way, where you, you run it as the frequentist, it, it doesn't converge, or it gives you those wacky answers, and then say, I have now discovered very strong prior beliefs that I had that, oh, look, it, it turns out the answer. If you don't mind, let me flip the script mm -hmm. on that. Uh, an example I use is from factor analysis, um, how to handle things like Haywood cases, where variances go uh, negative. Uh, what is the usual kind of conventional frequentist way to handle that? If I were doing, a, a, say, a CFA and I had a Haywood case, I would do one of two things. I would put some kind of boundary on it. And you could put a zero, but then people start yelling at you that it's a boundary condition. Mm -hmm. It's no longer a true maximum likelihood solution. And so, of course, you sidestep it entirely and make it 0.01, right, and fix that. And, and then you play the game. And, oh, this is funny, Roy. I hadn't even thought about this. As I've made this argument before, is the sampling distribution overlap zero and you're just by happen chance drawing from a negative value. That actually is a very Bayesian kind of statement because that's the main argument I'll see is, well, your residual variance is near zero, the sampling distribution overlaps zero, so you're okay to fix it at zero. So I would either put a boundary on it or if I were able I would say that's not an ideal item, and I would drop the item. Understood. From a, one of the earliest uh, applications of Bayes in factor analysis was to deal with Haywood cases. And it put a prior distribution on the variance that said variances should not be negative. And just that little prior belief was enough to nudge the solution towards uh, plausible values. So the, the situation you posed about people sort of imposing super strong priors and isn't that sort of rigging things a little bit and should we be critical of that? Yeah, but m most applications as I see them of Bayes inference is not trying to impose overly strong priors. More recently, there's this notion of what are called weakly regularizing or weakly informative or regularizing priors, which is let's just nudge it. Let's, let's take the mm -hmm. radical stance that variances should not be negative. Can we just build that into our analysis? And, and Bayes is allowing us to do that in a way that doesn't then constrain it to be 0.01, but says, let's estimate it from the data, but beforehand, let's prevent it from getting negative. That seems to me a very reasonable thing uh, to do. Yep. And you can do that in a lot of more meta ways where you could constrain other parameters to keep from becoming offensive, right? Uh, covariance parameters so that they don't exceed the product of the variables respective standard deviations sure. or even the determinant of a covariance matrix as a whole, right? You can start bounding those kinds of things. So it seems like what you're talking about could exist at lots of different levels within a model. Absolutely. And Bayes is just a framework for allowing you to express that through uh, the probability framework. All right. So, Roy, I have a couple of things that maybe are quick answers. What's an example out there in the real world that people come in contact with where Bayesian machinery is going on underneath the hood? Uh, patients uh, being tested for the presence of COVID. Mm -hmm. In the spring, there was some serious talk about doing serology tests to see, okay, has this patient had COVID in the past or not? And 
if they have had it and seemingly have recovered, we can send them out into the world safely. So there's mm-hmm. tests to detect whether or not the patient has COVID. And just to walk through some uh, numerical examples of it, if the patient actually has had COVID, the probability of the test turning up positive is around 0.93, 0.94. That's the sensitivity of the test. Mm-hmm. If a patient has not previously had COVID, the probability of the test being negative is, say, 0.96. That's the specificity. And then you're supposed to say, okay, let's say we got a patient and they test positive. Based on this test, what are the chances that they've had COVID? And most people would say, well, it's somewhere in that 0.94, 0.95, 0.96 range. But actually, that's not the case. Uh, you need to factor in the base rate, that is the proportion of people in the population being tested who've actually had COVID. And back in the spring, some of the estimates were down around 4%, 0.04. And through a Bayesian analysis, if you combine that prior information, what's the probability that you think this patient had had COVID before you give them this test with the information from a positive test result? Turns out the posterior probability that they've actually had the virus is only around 0.5. So that's a real world application where it said, you got a reason like a Bayesian and say, hey, just because you got a positive test doesn't mean we're all that sure you've had the virus. You should be more cautious about say, re-entering normal activity. Other examples, a little also from real-world situations are when things like Amazon or Netflix make a recommendation of what you want to buy or look at next. So are they homing in on my preferences based on prior information? Yeah, things like that, yeah. I like that. All right, tell us a good Bayesian joke. A good Bayesian joke. Um... I can tell you the, the one generic um, academic joke that I know and just make it a Bayes joke if you want Okay. That. Yeah. Okay. So there's a world famous but a reclusive scholar who has never been seen. And the scholar, late in, in their career, decides to go out and give a lecture tour on things. And the scholar goes to all these different universities and delivers the same wonderful lecture. And so it's kind of like a, a bus tour. And the scholar's driver says, you know, like, I- I've seen you give this lecture a dozen times. I could do this lecture. He said, yeah, well, no one's ever seen me. I'll be the driver and you give the lecture and we'll see what happens. So at the next university, they do that. And the the driver now goes up and and delivers the lecture fairly well. And it's on Bayesian statistics and Bayesian inference. And you get to the Q&A portion and the same questions have come up at each lecture. The driver handles it so well. And then somebody raises a hand and asks the question, can you explain how the Hamiltonian Monte Carlo approach is vastly different from the Gibbs sampling traditions for running MCMC? Uh, The driver says, well, that is such a simple question that even my driver can handle that. And, and <laughs> so I'm intrigued, and I'm sincerely intrigued. But where do I go from here? How would I come to develop a more legitimate understanding of Bayesian that, again, let's not forget, this is about me. Mm-hmm. Sure. And how can I use your knowledge to help me improve my work? So some just general Bayes stats text that I like and recommend, and there are many others as well. Um, a book called Bayesian Data Analysis, now in its third edition by Gelman et al. Mm-hmm. A book by Simon Jackman called Bayesian Analysis for the Social Sciences. Uh, John Kruschke's book, Doing Bayesian Data Analysis, a tutorial with R and Bugs and Stan. Mm-hmm. And then more targeted books for specific models or frameworks. If you're a multi-level person, I'd recommend Gelman and Hill's book, Data Analysis Using Regression and Multi-Level Hierarchical Models. If you're a structural equation modeling person, S.Y. Lee's book, Structural Mm -hmm. Equation Modeling, a Bayesian Approach. If you're an item response theory person, Jean-Paul Fox's text, Bayesian Item Response Modeling. 
And as Greg was kind enough to mention at the top of the show, I co-wrote a book called Bayesian Psychometric Modeling, which is about thinking about Bayes' approaches across different measurement or psychometric models. What the advice that I'll give you is your favorite Bayes resource or your favorite Bayes book is going to be the second one you look at because you won't understand the first one. (laughs) Um, Well, then I'm already going to like it because I didn't understand the first four. I know there was the little sideways fish in it. Uh That's where we are, Roy. That's where we are here. The sideways fish is good. Um, But... Yeah, so let, let's avoid some of the, the more statty historical stat textbooks and find something <laughs> more targeted. Um, I... So there's a pop-up book out there for me? <laughs> there's, a, there's a board book, a little baby board book, yeah. right? I don't know, Roy, did, uh, do your kids, did they go through that? No, I may or may not have pictures of my children wearing uh, onesies with Bayes' theorem on them. Um, which were a gift. I did not purchase them myself, but they were a gift. But of course, I put my children in them. Uh-huh. But no, I, I've not seen the board book. Yeah, it's called uh, Bayesian Probability for Babies. It's a little, you know, board okay. book. It's by Chris Ferry. There's one on neural nets. There's one on quantum computing. Uh, spectacular. So, Patrick, that might be a good place for you to start. All right. So, no, Roy, I'm good. I've got my next reading for the <laughs> semester. Roy, thank you so much. I know now that it is, what, like 7.20, so <laughs> you actually owe us a debt of gratitude because look at the jump on the day that you got. Man, oh, thank you so much. And to do apologize on behalf of the podcast to your wife. Take care, man. Thanks. Great to talk to you guys. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Not only did you not tell me who it was... You failed to tell me where he was. <laughs> Had you at least chosen that, uh-huh. we could have explored the subtleties of longitude. <laughs> I am going to tell you that I think that this is an outstanding feature. The whole idea of calling people in the middle of the night or when they're sleeping. I, I really think we need to, we, we have to embrace this. So I've been thinking about when we could record and what parts of the world we could call. I mean, if we record late enough in the day, I think we could have some middle-of-the-night calls to Europe and catch some scholars over there. I, th- I think it's a thing. So now you understand time zones. I, <laughs> I Googled it, so I'm... I... <laughs> that is the first time I've ever spoken to Roy. Of course, I know his work. I know you two have links together, but what a wonderfully charming guy. That was great fun. He is a lovely guy, and he's the only Bayesian I know. So are you one of those guys who's at a party and says, well, my best friend is Bayesian, and then somehow that makes it okay that you're a frequentist? (laughs) Best party ever. (laughs) Jeez. Sure. Yeah, on that note. On that note, what? (laughs) Is that just how you want to change the conversation? I thought you would just take take it from there. I'm going to try it again. Here we go. In three, two, one. (laughs) On that note. Damn it. You're untrainable. You're untrainable. (laughs) Well, very often a typical person would say, well, on that note, and then continue talking. Okay. So try it again. In three, two, one. On that note. Okay, so you really do just want me to do this. I would just like to thank everybody for joining us on the first edition of Wake Up Call. 
Huh? Huh? Oh, is this a new series now? <laughs> a think, new segment? Your wake-up call from Quantitude. I think we're going to do it. Oh, I love this. All you people out there, if you think you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> the farther away you are from the East Coast of the U.S., the more you should be worried. <laughs> Hello, Singapore. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. Yeah, uh, and thanks to Roy, and thanks for being a good sport. Paige, I've never met you, but you have my sincere apologies on that as well. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the use of your electrons, and we will catch up with you next week. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you squander your valuable time that would be better spent doing virtually anything other than this, and please leave a review. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donorschoose.org to support remote access and low-income schools. An added advantage is that the color of the queue on the t-shirt works like a green screen, and it looks like you have a hole in your chest on Zoom. So there's that. You've been listening to Quantitude, a podcast that's clearly still in burn-in. Today's episode was sponsored by your favorite R packages and the cryptic warning you get when they load, telling you they were built under a more recent version of R, even though you updated R two days ago. And by Bayesian Statistical Inference, or as Bayesians call it, Statistical Inference. And finally by MCMC, which for 30 years has been the preferred method of estimation and preferred rap name of Bayesians everywhere. This is most definitely not NPR. Oh my gosh. Hey, Dad. Hey, Tate. What's up? You'll never guess what happened. What? Okay, so remember how last year I told the jazz ensemble teacher, Mr. Dubs, that my sax improv riff is being used in your podcast Mm -hmm. and how people listen to it all over the world? Yeah? Well, Mr. Dubs just emailed the entire jazz ensemble and said he's starting off for first class this year with a listening party for your new season. He sent messages to all the new kids and their parents, too, and it's going to be so epic. Um, hmm? Yeah. Are you not super excited about this? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, for sure. But, uh, well, you know who would really love to hear about this? Who? Uh, your favorite jazz jamming buddy? Oh, Patrick. Totally. I'm going to call him now. You have his number? Of course. We text all the time. Well, we did up until a few weeks ago. Yeah, cut off. Let me try again. We got cut off again. It's like it answers, but then clicks off. Weird. Well, I'll try later. I know he's going to want to hear about this.